It is a great pleasure to welcome today's guest. Um, and I want to uh, welcome today's moderator, Julia Schumacher, um, who is a professor at the University of Minnesota. Professor Schumacher is the author of 10 books, 10 books, including Dear Committee Members, which was a New York Times bestseller and won the Thurber Prize for American Humor. Professor Schumacher remains the only woman to win the Thurber Award. With pleasure, I turn things over to Professor Schumacher. Thank you very much. Thanks to the Humphrey Center, to the faculty and staff at Humphrey for hosting this event. Um, I have to just correct Professor Jacobs. There are now two women who've won the Thurber Prize, so that's a good thing. I'm gonna introduce uh, Charles Baxter very briefly because I mainly want to have a chance for us to have a conversation and for people later on in this hour long program to put their questions into the Q&A so that uh, Charlie can get to those a bit later. Charles Baxter is the author of 11 novels and or collections of short fiction, as well as many books of poetry, essays, literary criticism, He's a National Book Award finalist. His novel uh, for the, the Feast of Love, which won, was a finalist for the National Book Award, was made into a terrific movie with Morgan Freeman. And um, he recently retired from a distinguished professorship at the University of Minnesota. I'm a big Baxter fan. You'll be able to see that from my collection of some of his books here that I have just pulled from the shelf behind me. And um, I was so excited to read this new book, The Sun Collective. It's one of his best. It's such a great novel. Um, I think in particular because it's, it's funny, but it's also sad. It's satirical, but very earnest. It's political, but deeply personal and intimate with such wonderful insight into human foibles and the human condition. And um, I think, I hope this talk will give people a bit of a respite from politics, but that said, um, the novel is very thoroughly of this moment. And it is set in the city of Minneapolis, which has seen a lot of upheaval as many parts of the country have in 2020. So um, very happy to be talking to Charlie. There will be information on uh, his book if you would like to buy it later on uh, on your screen. And I thought, Charlie, I'd ask you to just start by telling us where the book came from. Um, maybe give us a quick description for people who haven't yet read it. Sure. Uh, <clears throat> when I've been thinking about where this book came from, I have come up, I think, with approximately four uh, uh, events, causes that, that led to it. Um, and certainly one of them was that uh, I ride the light rail, uh, or I used to ride the light rail uh, before the pandemic all the time. And when I was on the light rail and sometimes when I was waiting for it, I would find myself in the company of uh, homeless people. Uh, and uh, I think most people, tend to uh, just avoid them, but I found that some of them like to talk and like to tell me about their, their situation, how they lived, where they slept. And a, a lot of that 
uh, found its way into the into the novel. Um, a, a, a second um, cause of the novel, which may seem very minor, but for me wasn't, was that I found myself one evening in a bar talking to a friend who uh, was lecturing me about Google. <laughs> and I, I, I think I had asked her innocently whether she had Google Maps whereupon she said that she didn't want to have anything to do with Google or with the algorithms or with the patterns of purchasing and movement that she knew Google was storing. And did I know that uh, Google was amassing all of this personal information on all of us for commercial and political purposes? And I thought, oh, that's, that's very interesting. Um, and I th it, it made me think that if there were to be uh, an activist group that wanted to work politically, one of the things that they would have to think about would, would be whether they would do their work on the internet or whether they would be opposed to the internet and would be avoiding it. Uh, and so uh, those were two elements. I think I had also been thinking about the, the political history of Minneapolis in which my stepfather uh, figured. And, and I had grown up hearing about the trucker strike of 1934, uh, the truckers versus the citizens alliance. And I was just thinking, well, Minneapolis has had this history of political movement. I didn't want to write a strictly political novel like it can't happen here. I wanted to write something that was somewhere between political fantasy and comedy, which would slowly move into uh, a suspense mode starting in the middle of the book and going out uh, to the end. Uh, I, I can give you a, a, a very brief plot summary uh, if you think that would be helpful. Yeah, I, I would love a brief plot summary. And um, in particular, um, this is a novel, but there are real life correspondences, I think that are very interesting in the novel. <laughs> There's a president, Amos Thorkelson, who bears a certain resemblance to the president of the US uh, currently. There's a very large mall called the Utopia Mall, which bears a, a large resemblance to uh, the Mall of America, which is located just outside of Minneapolis. Um, so, yeah. Yeah, I, I wanted to use as many uh, of the settings of Minneapolis that I could, the, the sculpture garden, the Skyway, uh, the, uh, and the St. Paul, uh, zoo, the, the Mall of America, they all figure into the book. Very briefly, I'll just say that uh, the, the, the novel has two particular strands. One follows and has to do with an older couple, my age, retired, uh, Harry and Alma Bredigan. Uh, and uh, their retirement has been, now been taken up 
with a search for their adult son, whose name is Timothy, who seems to have gone deliberately to live among uh, the homeless people in Minneapolis. And so Harry and Alma drive around, walk around, trying to find where their son is. Uh, and in his wanderings, Harry Bredigan encounters a homeless guy who tells him that there is a group called the Sandmen. And this group is made up of apparently young men coming in from the suburbs who are assaulting, if not actually killing the poor and the homeless. And Harry Bredigan says to this guy, oh, that, that can't be true. That must be just a rumor. And the homeless guy says, no, no, it's really happening. Uh, and this is one of the first elements in the novel in which we get a sense that, that something in um, the air uh, is based on rumor, speculation, and uh, uh, fantasy. In the second half of the uh, second part of the plot, we have two characters uh, named Christina uh, Labdell uh, and her boyfriend, who is just known as Ludlow. Uh, he, she thinks of him as Ludlow because he's a Luddite. And these two people are uh, attracted to a neighborhood activist group called the Sun Collective, uh, where they meet Harry and Alma's son, Tim, and everything would be fine at that point with the convergence of Harry and Alma and uh, Christina and Ludlow, if it weren't for the fact that Ludlow is a more traditional revolutionary and he has some serious uh, destruction on his mind. And it's at that point that the novel more or less stops being uh, a comedy to the extent that it has been a comedy and takes on some of the elements of a suspense narrative. Um, I, uh, well, we can talk about this later, but, but what Christina, who ends up, I think, being the, her uh, the hero of the book, really wants is to have a future for herself and for others. And that means preserving certain elements of the present, which is certainly something that Ludlow himself does not want to do. Yeah, and there are, there are a few moments. Christina's a really interesting character because um, she's someone who, she's young, she wants change. She wants to make the world a better place. She refers at one moment that her, to her desire to save the world and asks about other people who are confronting, you know, political, social difficulties. Where was their rage? Right. On the other hand, it, it seems difficult for her to figure out what to do with that rage, whether to put it in the Sun Collective, whether to trust these people, whether to do nothing, whether as she sometimes does during the novel, just resort to a drug habit. 
she doesn't know what to do with with her rage. Um, she doesn't know what to do with her rage. And, and I tried to make it clear that she has had a fairly traditional uh, education in the university system. She, she has been uh, uh, trained in critical theory. She's very good at deconstruction. She's very good at intellectual skepticism. She's been trained not to believe things. At the same time, the, she wants to bring about some kind of social change. She just doesn't know how, and she is, uh, she's probably the most in, uh, intelligent character in the book and the best educated, and she's underemployed. She's working as a, uh, as a receptionist at a bank. So when she arrives at the Sun Collective, uh, she's not at all put off by their uh, somewhat amorphous, disorganized uh, way of doing things. She likes it that they have uh, free stores, free boxes. She likes it that they uh, are trying to rehabilitate street people. She likes it that uh, they're thinking uh, or that they have a co-op grocery. These, these, these things all look very good to her. Uh, they're thinking of starting a co-op bank, but what really appeals to Christina more than anything else is that when she arrives at their meetings, she feels as if she's welcome there and that she belongs. She's like so many of us, uh, she feels isolated. And when she gets into, um, into the meeting, uh, she feels that she belonged there. I, I'll just read a paragraph. She's telling somebody of what it was like. You should come, she said. It's just, well, they told me that it had started as a neighborhood watch group. And after the world got worse, after President Torkelson was elected, that sort of transmogrified or something into a community garden collective growing vegetables and sunflowers on a vacant lot, which is why they're called the Sun Collective. And then they branched out into neighborhood free boxes with clothes and shoes and overcoats for poor people. And they've been working on restoring. No, that's not the word. Reclaiming, no, that's not the word either. Homeless people. Anyway, they're getting formal homeless people at the meeting, ex-addicts getting straight in. Yeah, it's kind of anarchic, with some universal basic income proselytizers and democratic socialists, everybody arguing, just a bunch of chaotic subgroups, including urban farmers. She sighed, it made me happy. She sighed again. And they were real actual people doing work in the world. It wasn't like just another chat group on the internet. <laughs> So I, I was thinking it wasn't just the, the, the political aims they had, it was the fact that she felt welcome. Uh, and I think that's a very powerful attraction uh, in um, contemporary life. Uh, God knows here in the middle of the pandemic, when we're also isolated, we all miss we, we all miss so many features of ordinary life and one of them is just gathering with people. Right. And th that's what she finds so attractive. 
and she she stays attracted to it until she realizes that that Ludlow isn't content with the sort of ordinary improvements. He he wants to do something else. Mm -hmm. I think Christina is a great uh, contrast to um, the main character who starts off the book, Harold Bredigan. He's uh, the book begins with this beautiful chapter of Harold Bredigan on the light rail in Minneapolis. He's a retired structural engineer. He's been married for 40 plus years to his wife, Alma. <laughs> Again, father of two grown children, including Tim, the guy who has gone, gone uh, missing, absenting himself from uh, their lives. And you have a great portrait of Bredigan's cranky but <laughs> successful marriage to Alma. There's a moment where Alma um, believes that, you know, she knew him so well, she could almost enter his dreams as a tour guide. <laughs> and so much of the humor of the novel is, I think, um, involved in their marriage and their relationship. But how do you see Bredigan as a contrast to Christina? Um, early on in the novel, he's, again, he's on the light rail and he's gazing out the grimy window with the uneasy intelligence of someone who has few illusions to comfort him. I mean, maybe Christina is in search of those illusions and he, as a person one generation older than she, no longer has those illusions and seems maybe content to live without them. Yeah, yeah. Well, I felt that, that in structuring the novel, I really had to begin the book with somebody who is a kind of middle of the road character, somebody we can trust. Uh, and I, I say that because when we move into Christina's mental landscape, one of the things that we discover is that she's taking this drug much of the time, blue telephone, which I invented. And, and so she's, much more volatile uh, and she lives in a kind of wonderland. Uh, the, the book itself begins in realism, but I think it doesn't stay there. It, it moves into what I would call a kind of wonderland, which is both real and not. But you can't, I feel you can't take the reader into wonderland uh, too rapidly because we won't believe it. So Harry Bredigan is the sort of guy you might see, the aged guy on the light rail going out to the Mall of America, or as I call it, the Utopian Mall, uh, just in order to exercise with his geezer group. These are his friends from high school. And yet he is, he's troubled by what he sees uh, from um, the homeless people he encounters. And the, the, the first scene that we have in the book is one in which he has a conversation with a, a very strange sort of doctor named Arthur Jefferson, who in effect gives him what I would call a request moment. And the request moment is whenever you see somebody who seems to be impoverished, you should give them money because it's, uh, the doctor says, 
Notre Seigneur en pauvre, our Lord in rags, you have to give money to the poor because it's a spot quiz for your salvation. So, so Harry Bredigan, oh, the other thing I should mention about him is that he's a bridge designer, uh, a structural engineer. And so metaphorically, he's the kind of person who wants to build bridges to, from one place to another, from one group to another. And in the last pages of the book, he's thinking of a bridge he would design to take people from this world to the afterlife. So I thought of him as a likable companion for the reader uh, and a sort of ambassador into the world of the novel from realism into wherever it is we're going. Uh, I think of it as, as uh, unrealism or, or um, uh, wonderland, but different readers may see it in different ways. Yeah, the, on the topic of realism, there's a, um, a character who at one point uh, says the phrase, I miss realism. Right. And um, there are references to the world of the novel, which again is mostly realistic um, as being a post-truth environment. Yeah. Yeah. What, yeah. what does that mean? What is a post-truth environment? Is that, is that a commentary on where we are today? I'm afraid so. Um, I, you know, I, I think our presentation is supposed to be away from politics, but this is one place where politics uh, comes in. I, I wrote this book in the last, during the last five years. And at, when I began it, I was writing in what I would call a realist mode, but I had a moment about four, <clears throat> excuse me, four years ago when I thought, you know, realism in fiction of the kind that we all studied in school, 19th century British novel, 20th century American novel, even Russian novels. These books and these stories are all based on the assumption that the readers share the same view more or less of reality. And realism as a form of literature makes sense when everybody agrees on what reality is. But I think realism in fiction stops making sense when there is no general agreement on what reality is. And I think actually we have come to that moment. I think it is true that many of our fellow citizens no longer agree on what reality is. And that's partly because of the internet, partly because of speculation, conspiracy, things that uh, uh, might be true, but aren't true. Uh, if we are in a post-truth environment, then it seems to me, as, as some of my characters say, they are nostalgic for reality. They wish reality would come back because they feel that they're living in a time when reality is no longer one thing. Uh, it has shifted into a condition of unreality. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of us feel that, mm -hmm. but you just open the paper and m much of the news is about 
not actual fact, but about speculation. Yeah, yeah. And it's, I wanted to bring up the epigram at the beginning of the book, which is from a Lewis Simpson poem. Um, and I suppose it refers to that passage when Bredigan is on the light rail and he's looking at the homeless and other uh, folks on the light rail. And he refers to them in his own mind as victims of capitalism, capitalism. of C. Um, here mm -hmm. are the D of C, he thinks. But the epigram at the start of the book um, is, it's complicated being an American, having the money and the bad conscience both at the same time. Right. Um, where, did that, and, where did that, where does that fit? Well, it, it fits in the sense that if you're comfortable and if you're walking let's say in downtown Minneapolis, as I do, and you see tents and homeless people, you think, what is my task? What should I be doing? Uh, I've, I've done these bookstore presentations lately uh, for a bookstore in Portland and one in Seattle and one in San Francisco and, uh, it, it's getting to be our urban experience that we see uh, the homeless in ever greater numbers. And it's difficult to know what you should be doing. Uh, you certainly can walk on and do nothing. You can stop and talk, which is what I often do. Uh, you can give money, but it's difficult being an American having the money and the bad conscience both at the same time. Simpson goes on to say, perhaps this is not the right subject for a poem. Uh, so I think that's where we start from. And in fact, Harry um, believes that he is a man who is capable of violence of some kind, maybe revolutionary violence, but he's never done it. He awakens at night from dreams in which he's killed somebody. And he tells his wife and Alma says, oh no, Harry, you're just totally harmless. And he, it's interesting. He doesn't take it as a compliment. American men, I think, do not take it as a compliment <laughs> to be called harmless. I mean, if you're a young man and somebody says about you, hey, you're a really dangerous guy. That's a compliment. Yeah. Uh, so Harry is sort of on this cusp between thinking of himself as a really active male and someone who um, just contemplates or hasn't done enough. Um, I, I want to go back to the humor for a minute because so much of this book is funny, even though um, so much of it is <laughs> wrenching and about our political moment. Also, there, um, there are these slippages that the characters experience. Harry, you know, inhabits very much the real world, but others feel the pull of some sort of uh, mysticism or non-reality. And Alma, Harry's wife, after a, a sort of spell that she experiences, possibly a, a minor stroke while they're in the park, learns that she can talk to the dog and to the cat. And um, not, those... only, not only can she talk to them, 
They talk to her. Sorry. They I, talk to her. They talk to her. And, and what they say is completely comprehensible to her, although not to the other members of the household. But eventually, Bredigan does some speaking to the animals himself. He doesn't speak to them in long conversations the way that Alma, his wife, does. But I, would you read? There's a section on, um, on 131, um, sure. conversation, sure. the dog and the cat. And um, it's just that they helped yeah. point out some of the, the vivid strangeness of the marriage between um, Harry and Alma and um, their characters. Yeah, and before I read this and, and the listeners think that I'm completely off my rocker, I'll just say that I had noticed, I think in the houses of two friends, people speaking to their pets. Uh, and, and I noticed in one case, there was a moment almost of listening when I thought the person <laughs> was listening to the response from the animal. Anyway, here's the passage. That night, sleepless again at 2 a.m., sporting a clean pair of blue jeans and a windbreaker over his t-shirt, but with the same straw flat brim hat he had worn the night before to give himself the appearance of genteel refinement, Bredigan put the leash on the dog's collar and together, the two of them, man and dog, went out the front door and down the block, the dog nervously glancing up from time to time to inquire about the purpose of this nighttime stroll. You'll see, Bredigan told the dog quietly, so as not to rouse his neighbors. I thought dogs liked adventures. I was sleeping, the dog said. You woke me up. Well, you can sleep during the day if you want to, Bredigan said, sotto voce. I don't get it, the dog said. What are we doing out here? Well, I was curious about Albert. I'm, I'm curious about the Sandman. And then there's a moment when suddenly uh, Harry's wife appears, talking to yourself? And there she was, Alma, his wife, who had caught up with him and now put her arm in his. She was wearing anything that she had found in the dark bedroom after he had left. I feel that particularly in a, in a novel which has some political overtones, it's important to get the reader to laugh. If you can get the reader to laugh as a writer, you can get away with anything. <laughs> you can get away. Uh, and and the, the, the book no longer seems point making. Uh, it, it seems, it can seem entertaining and it can seem like a, uh, a, a, a page turner. Mm -hmm. And in fact, uh, as you may know, I wanted to give the dog and the cat the last word. Um, the, the next to last chapter was the one that I had intended to end the novel with, mm -hmm. in which the dog and the cat are speaking to Alma and my editor, my editor is not one to throw fits and he didn't really throw a fit, but he said, you can't do that. I said, I can't. And he said, no, you've got this book ending with, with the dog speaking. 
<laughs> and and I, you have to reverse you you have to reverse the order. He was he was right, of course, uh, but uh, I did uh, if if I can have your indulgence, I'll just read a, a, a quick moment. Uh, uh, Alma is at home and Harry hasn't shown up in, in the way that he usually does. He's like me, he's a man of routine. He comes back the same time every day. And Alma is sitting in the living room and the dog and the cat are in front of her. And they're sitting patiently and she's sitting patiently and she thinks or says, where's my husband? Doing whatever he does, the cat says. You should learn to wait, patience. Well, I've been patient with that guy all my life, Alma says. In that case, be patient now. Another hour passes and now Alma's irritation is being mixed increasingly with worry. Where is he? This isn't like him. What's like him? To let me know where he is, if something happens. He always returns, the dog observes. Same time every day. Well, you say that because you're a dog. So? I just don't know what got into him. He never does this. He never does this. He just never does. Maybe he got lost, the cat says. Maybe he took off somewhere. You're heartless, Alma says to the cat. No, realistic. The room is beginning to darken slightly as the afternoon goes on. He'll come back. He always comes back, the dog repeats. Well, how do you know, Alma asks. Loyalty and love, the dog says. What else is there? And that was going to be the last line of the novel. Loyalty and love, what else is there? Uh, but, but now it's, it's, it's been switched. I tried to make the dog and the cat sound like an actual dog and cat. Oh, they totally do. <laughs> of course they do. <laughs> well, and there are, there are other um, sort of mystical aspects. You mentioned Arvor Jefferson, who's a sort of Wizard of Oz-like figure who appears initially on the light rail. And he suggests at one point to Bredigan a cure for afflictions, anything that is mm -hmm. plaguing or bothering him. Mm -hmm. And this cure consists of um, Bredigan washing his reflected face in a mirror yeah. underwater, yeah. which yeah. he attempts to do. Yeah, I had, uh, you asked earlier what some of the catalysts that uh, background for this novel was. And I had been reading in uh, a book or a couple of books about the, by coincidence, this was uh, four or five years ago, the history of the 1918 Spanish flu epidemic, which my mother lived through uh, on 2817 Pillsbury Avenue South in Minneapolis. And she told me about black crepe paper being put up in front of the door in houses where people were sick. But she also told me, and I found this in a history of folklore cures 
for the influence of the 1918 flu epidemic that it was thought that germs for the disease nested in mirrors. And so my mother said that they had taken all the mirrors in the house out and washed them. And it was considered to be a folklore or country cure to take a mirror. This is more in the South. You take a mirror, you go to where there is flowing water, a stream, you drop the river, you drop the mirror into the river and you wash your face in it. You wash your reflected face. And, and obviously it's a kind of magic, uh, folklore, cure. Um, and you can read, there's a poem by John Nofel who lived in Missouri about this cure. Mm -hmm. But I thought it was such a, uh, an extraordinarily strange and wonderful thing that I would um, start my novel with this strange wizard-like person, Arver Jefferson, who gives um, Bredigan two uh, commands or suggestions. One is to give money to the poor, and the other is to wash your face in a mirror, in a reflected, in, in a uh, flowing stream, which as it turns out, Bredigan does, except he does it not to himself, but to his wife, Alma. Uh, he drops a mirror and then tilts the mirror so that Alma's, his wife's image appears and he starts to wash it. And in what's really the novel's first movement into a um, wonderland, they seem to enter a kind of time warp where they're both uh, college students again uh, in the mirror. Uh, and it causes Alma's mini stroke or whatever it is. And after that, she's able to talk to the dog and the cat. I, I you know, I, I hope that these episodes are um, both true and a little strange and funny before the, the novel gets as dark as it is going to get. I have loads more questions, but there are questions lighting up in the Q&A. So I'll turn to some of those. Um, one person wants to know or wants to hear more about how President Thorkelson figures into the novel. Um, he's he's a, a minor figure, you never see him. Uh, he is um, a, a figure almost out of Sinclair Lewis's It Can't Happen Here or out of um, Robert Penn Warren's uh, uh, All the King's Men. Uh, he has a nickname, Coach, and those of you with long memories or encyclopedias uh, will remember that there was a figure named Amos Alonzo Stagg, who was a, a football coach and a basketball coach um, 
in the early part of the 20th century. Torkelson uh, is a name from, uh, and I'm going to forget his full name, uh, a member of Congress from Montana, I think. You can look it up. He was a famous segregationist and uh, uh, reactionary. Uh, I, uh, Torkelson is a kind of folksy president. Uh, and he's um, both what? Um, he's kind of a comedic figure. He's proposing, for example, a 41% tax on books. Okay. Uh, it's the same rate of taxation on books that you find on cigarettes um, because one of, he has these phrases that he keeps repeating. And one of the phrases uh, is, some things don't bear very much looking into. You're better off not looking into all of these books. Therefore, we're going to tax uh, them at 41%. And, and he's, he's uh, dissolved, what has he dissolved? Um, the Supreme Court. Uh, he's, he's generally a comic figure. He's a very small part of the book, but to the extent that I was writing the book in the last four years, um, Torkelson, uh, who likes to be called coach, is uh, one of those sort of folksy political figures who's also um, involved in the creation of rumor and speculation and conspiracy. Uh, but I tried to do all of that in a comic way. I, I didn't want it to seem as if I'm delivering some kind of sermon. Here's another question about names in the novel. Uh, the name Alma um, means it, soul or- It no, means soul. And it means um, soul. Points out that has a nurturing quality. And do yes. you see Alma as a soul-like person or a pillar in their society? She absolutely is. And she is, uh, she has greater depth of feeling than her husband does. And when she sees, she's on, on his birthday, she's in the Minneapolis Skyway and she's off to find him a, a shirt for a birthday present. And what she sees is a man down on all fours in the skyway. She's over by the lumber building. Mm -hmm. uh, and he's making groans. And she can, she's so shocked by the sight of this, which incidentally I saw in the, in the skyway, that uh, it gets to her right here. She can hardly speak after that. Um, and she is uh, for Harry. They have one of those marriages that's gone on for decades. As Julie said, she knows all of his dreams so well that she could give a tour in them. Uh, she's, 
they're both kind of tired of each other mm -hmm. in the way that long-term marriages sometimes can be. They know each other's stories. They know each other's habits. But Harry says to her at one point, or he thinks, you don't have to love water, but you have to have water to live. Mm -hmm. And that's the way he feels about Alma. Mm -hmm. and, and she really is his soul. Yeah, yeah. And there are a lot of people um, in the novel who seem to be seekers or obsessed with, concerned with the soul. Uh, at one point, Christina describes Ludlow as a person who had an unkempt and disordered right. soul. And um, Timothy, uh, the son who's gone missing, is um, referred to as misplaced yeah. rather than um, yeah. missing or disappeared. So there, there is this, are all of the characters Seekers? In well, in uh, different kinds of seeking. Uh, Timothy, uh, I've had a couple of friends who were actors. And at one time, I, I, you know, in high school, I wanted to be an actor. And I started to think about what it would be like to be a really terrific mimic or actor. And um, I, I came to feel that you could have a crisis in your early 20s when you'd say, well, I can play this role and this role and this role and this role, but what, what's my, who am I? What kind of person am I? And so Timothy really is on a search of the kind that you described mm -hmm. to find out who he is and the place that he goes for that is the street. Mm -hmm. He doesn't go to a psychiatrist. He doesn't go to a therapist. He doesn't go to a class. He goes out into the street. Um, I, was, I was thinking of two things. There's a book by Kierkegaard called The Crisis in the Life of an Actress, which is about an, a, a Danish actress who had a kind of breakdown because she didn't know who she was. Uh, I was thinking about that. And I was thinking about the story of Pinocchio, who wants to be a real boy. Mm -hmm. um, and I suppose in the course of the book, I was also thinking of somebody like Christina, who wants to belong to a group and wants to have a mission. She really wants to save people. She wants to save the world and she gives up a lot. Mm -hmm in the course of the novel in order to do that. Mm -hmm. She's very brave. Uh, uh, for, for me, Christina took over the narrative. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. I'm gonna combine a bunch of questions and um, ask you a number of people are asking about influences um, that might have borne on the making of this novel. Uh, one person is reminded of Carol Shields novel, Unless. Um, someone else reminded of uh, Vonnegut and Fitzgerald and the Great Gatsby. And um, somebody has asked whether if, if you, you lived in Ann Arbor for years before moving to Minneapolis, could this novel have been set in a different city in Ann Arbor instead of Minneapolis? So what, what sort of influences both literary and in terms of 
the city in which you now live. Yeah, uh, great questions, great questions. Um, the, the book might have been set in Ann Arbor. I set the Feast of Love in Ann Arbor, but partly because that city is full of people who love to talk. <laughs> and uh, they're just, I mean, anywhere you go in Ann Arbor, you run into these loquacious characters. And I thought that was very good for that particular novel. Um, I, I love Vonnegut. And I, I love the sort of mixture of comic anxiety and social speculation that his books have, um, uh, but particularly Cat's Cradle. But for what I wanted in this book, oh, let me go back to this question. I thought that Minneapolis was the ideal place for this particular story, partly because of the growth of homeless encampments here, uh, partly because the city seems to be uh, somewhat politically volatile, uh, partly because it's my home and I know uh, the uh, different parts of the city and also because of its political history. Um, as for uh, influences, the greatest influence on the Sun Collective is a Russian novel that not very many American readers know, but which I think is one of the great novels of political fantasy. It's a comic novel, but is very deeply moving and very political. I'll hold it up. It's by Mikhail Bulgakov. And the title is The Master and Margarita. And my little tip of the hat to The Master and Margarita is that there is a talking cat in The Master and Margarita who's part of Satan's retinue. <laughs> and the talking cat is named Behemoth. Uh, same name as the cat, the talking cat in my novel and uh, uh, Satan in The Master and Margarita. And you have to remember that, that, that The Master and Margarita is mostly a, a comic novel with some very, very dark parts attached to it. Uh, but Satan, who is a kind of comic figure in The Master and Margarita is named Woland or Voland, mm -hmm. uh, which is the, the same name as the dog. In, in, my, uh, in, in my book. Uh, I tried to stay away from uh, some of the other novels of uh, uh, communal alternative life. Dana Spiata has written a couple of books. Eat the Document is one of them. Uh, and um, Lauren Groff has written a, a, a book about communes. Uh, uh, T. Cora Hessen Boyle has written a, a novel uh, about communes. I didn't want to write that kind of book uh, I, where 
the day-to-day -day life of a commune or an alternative way of being is laid out in detail. I want to go through all that much faster and um, have the Sun Collective over there at a distance. It's a little hard to see. What I was interested in was how such a group might arise and the way that people might glom onto it and then possibly turn it to more, who knows, violent means. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, you held up Master and Margarita. I'm gonna hold up <laughs> here. Um, it's a great book to give someone as a gift. And um, it's a beautiful read. You have a Thank couple you. of moments toward the end of the novel when characters disparage novels. Reminded me of um, you know, it, some of Jane Austen's characters who have <laughs> disparaging things to say about the works in which they are living. But um, Bredigan refers to himself as once a reader of fiction, but in middle yeah. age, he grew to despise it. Fiction was like quicksand dragging you down. <clears throat> Later on, Bredigan says to someone else, no one reads novels, but <laughs> you're a novelist. Um, what are those sentences doing in there? What, what are, why are people reading and writing novels now if we are in this post-realist phase, if we're in a time of crisis? What do you have to say about the novel? Two things. Um, Bredigan was a reader of fiction when he was young. Uh, and I've noticed, um, particularly among men, uh, that they have a love of fiction when they're, they're young. And then um, the real life takes over and they're not interested in fiction anymore. In, in the second scene, uh, Bredigan is in a barbershop and they're talking about a novel uh, called Prometheus Unchained. Uh, and uh, Bredigan says, nobody reads novels. And the people in the barbershop say, well, they read this one. And if you read between the lines, the novel they're talking about is Atlas Shrugged, uh, which uh, there's a paragraph uh, in which the uh, Speaker of the House of Representatives has been influenced by Prometheus Unchained the uh, uh, Secretary of the Treasury. I was thinking of Paul Ryan and Alan Greenspan and all of these people who had been in rationalist societies. I mean, you can make the argument that the most influential American novel of the 20th century, whether you like it or not, is not The Great Gatsby. It is not uh, Invisible Man by Ralph Ellison. It's not another country, it's not Toni Morrison, it's Atlas Shrugged. Uh, and uh, I, in fact, I read Atlas Shrugged while I was writing this novel, or at least John Galt's sermon, because I thought, well, I've got to find out what, what they're saying. But that's an influential novel. People read it. Who is John Galt on the bumper sticker? Well, I think, um, unfortunately, we're out of time, but <clears throat> I'll end on the fact that someone has put in the chat that um, having been a fan of your work for many years, we named our dog Baxter and had wonderful conversations with him for 15 years. 
That's great. So I think that's <laughs> great. Thank good you. Nod between real life and fantasy there. And um, thanks, Charlie, and everybody. It's a great book. Thank you. Thank you, Julie. Thank you to the Humphrey School. Uh, thanks to everybody for setting this up. And thanks to those who came.